0: Intention actually draws together the various split parts of our personality and our action to unify them in one direction. Intentionality requires not only saying yes to something, but it requires saying no to a bunch of other things.
1: Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness, but I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you are ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to The School for Good Living. Today my guest is Stephen Cope. Stephen is a best-selling author whose books have literally changed my life by helping me to have more fulfilling relationships, to think more deeply about the work that I'm here on earth to do, to get more enjoyment out of it, and also to understand some aspects of the yogic traditions that I wasn't familiar with. His books include Deep Human Connection, why we need it more than anything else the great work of your life a guide for the journey to your true calling and yoga and the quest for the true self most books i read i only read one time but i have a feeling i will be revisiting these books they're so rich with incredible stories and thoughts and distinctions to help you live a better life Stephen is scholar in residence at the famed kripalu center for yoga and health in stockbridge massachusetts And he's also the founding director of the Kripalu Institute for Extraordinary Living. In this conversation, we talk about what it means to become a soul awake in this lifetime, how we can do it. We talk about Dharma, what it is, your sacred duty, your calling, why it matters, how to find it and live it. We talk about mastery, the power of intention, aspiration versus craving. And then we talk about relationships, including naming different kinds of relationships, all of which can help us to be better partners, to have more fulfilling relationships, and ultimately to grow and to contribute. In addition to this conversation, you can learn more about Stephen and his work at stephencope.com. He spells that S-T-E-P-H-E-N, or at kripalu.org. That's K-R-I-P-A-L-U.org. I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my new friend, Stephen Cope. Stephen, welcome to the school for good living thank
0: you brilliant it's great to be here yeah
1: i'm so glad you are Stephen, will you tell me please what's life about
0: (laughs) well i can only speak for myself on that one brilliant for me and i've been very i've been very influenced by the yoga traditions in in this response for me it's really about bringing everything i have to the project of being a fully alive human being. In the yoga traditions, there's something called the jiva mukti, or the soul awake in this lifetime. And of course, that tradition has, I would say, somewhat higher aspirations for what that looks like than we generally do in the West. The jiva mukti, the soul awake in this lifetime, is aware of and in union with the greater consciousness of, of being, of life, of soul. And in this particular view, that path that path may be very many lifetimes in its achievement. So each lifetime is another step on the path toward union with the divine, with the universal mind, with soul. In yoga, it's with Brahman, which is being consciousness, bliss. You know, in, in the yoga tradition, all of life is seen as... The pilgrimage to unify one's self and one's spirit with Brahman. As you probably know, the central view there is each individual soul is an act, actually a part of the the greater Brahman, the greater soul. And so life is just a pilgrimage to waking up to that. So again, that's a very high aspiration. And it's the one that I've been inspired to take.
1: Wow. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And and I understand that your life's path took a bit of a turn, maybe 30 years or so ago, where you took what you intended to be a sort of sabbatical, which ended up to be roughly three decades. Is that the case?
0: Exactly right. 32 years and counting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this happens to a lot of people. And in the, the model of adult development in the Hindu tradition, it's very common at the age of 35 or 40 to leave what we might call the working world or the marketplace and move into a life of increasing contemplation and meditation. And that's kind of what happened to me. So at 40 years old, right on the dot, usually technically they say this happens at 42, but at 40 years old, I broke up with a 15-year-long partner, and that was the occasion of an experience of kind of falling apart. And I think this happens to a lot of people when the structure that they've worked so hard on, either in work or love, as Freud says, comes apart. And it's an auspicious opportunity to come back together again around perhaps a more expansive view of who one is so at 40 when my relationship fell apart and i was not the lever in that situation i was the one who was left which is not that much fun but i actually look on it now as an incredibly auspicious thing to have happened at 40 because when everything fell apart i needed you know as animals do when they fall apart in various ways to crawl to safe space to refuge to in this case. And it's curious, I, I knew that at that point, I needed to go into a deep year or more of deep inquiry, of settling. And I also knew that I needed to feel safely held and in soothed in, within the arms of a community. And I actually had my name on a door at an Episcopal monastery, the Society of St. John the Evangelist in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I was almost ready to go there for the same reasons to, to find uh, holding and balm and community. At the same time, I bumped into Kripalu when I went to Kripalu for a weekend. And Of course, back in those days, we were a full-on ashram with an Indian guru. There were 350 of us living there performing seva or selfless service volunteers. And it was a marvelous community. And I was immediately attracted to it. And I decided that rather than the monastery, I was going to go to the the yogic monastery, if you will, at Propolo. And I framed it as a sabbatical from my psychotherapy practice, which was thriving and in fine shape. It took me more than a year to actually terminate with all my long-term patients and end up in the arms and in the bosom of this amazing community, which again then had 350 residents, but thousands of people in the wider world involved. And a fairly brilliant, although flawed teacher, Amrita Sai, who's still around, but not at Kapala, I landed there and I discovered a community full of smart, alive, aspirational people, endeavoring to live this ancient yogic path. And I was so drawn in. And of course, I already had training in in psychoanalytic theory and psychotherapy. And I discovered that there were many, many similarities between the kind of path of depth psychology that I've been studying and the depth psychology of the contemplative tradition. So I got really interested in the relationship between those two. and. And that's when I started writing books about that topic. After a number of months, it was clear to me that I was not going to go back to my office, which was waiting there for me. And I just jumped into this whole Kripalu experience with both feet and it's just been a crazy, wonderful ride. I mean, all kinds of stuff has happened, (laughs) but I feel very grateful now that I made that choice. It was, as all Dharma choices are, a leap off the cliff. One never really knows. And I guess I was lucky I, I landed well.
1: I think you have, I mean, from my view, and I know you mostly only from what you've written and specifically the great work of your life and yoga and the quest for the true self and, and now deep human connection. So through your books, but I'm very grateful for how honestly you've shared of your experience and your learning. It's been really remarkable. And, and I love the way you started this conversation talking about you know the Jivan Mukti and the, the becoming fully awake and alive in this lifetime. And just a moment ago, you mentioned Dharma. Right. Which is something I think is sometimes talked about, but not maybe very well understood. And I wonder if you'll just talk a little bit about that, about what is Dharma? How can we recognize, like, how can we find it for ourselves? And how do we know once we have?
0: It's a great question. So, I mean, first of all, Dharma is one of those very complex, many layered Sanskrit words. And you'll often hear it referred to as meaning the truth, the path, the law, the teachings, in the context that I write about it, it actually means sacred duty or true calling or vocation. The view here in the yoga tradition is that all beings have a sacred vocation, a true calling, and that life is nothing other than a pilgrimage to fully embrace that and act it out in the world. So. This is only one of the paths of yoga. This is the path of karma yoga or the path of service, the path of service, and and it's a very active path. And as you probably know, there are three or four or, or even five different, fundamentally different tracks in the yoga tradition. So you can be a nana yogi, which is somebody who's really drawn towards subtle intellectual discernment, or a raja yogi, which is somebody who's, much more drawn to depth psychology, or a bhakti yoga yogi, which is all about the heart. I was always a karma yogi, very active, interested in service, service to the world, and in finding and plumbing the depths of whatever small gifts I have. So dharma, again, in in my context, in the context about which I write, means this ineffable but also very real idea of calling and vocation
1: and how do we know you know i had this experience in my 30s where i had the feeling like my life was i'm not sure if it was exploding or imploding <laughs> and looking back it's easy to see my role in it but then it was everyone else's fault <laughs> right but one of the things that shifted for me was uh, a rabbi actually helping me come to believe that I had a purpose, of course, he didn't use the word Dharma, but it literally shifted everything for me just to believe it. He, of course, stopped short of telling me what it was or even how to find it, but just the certainty or the confidence I left that conversation with believing I even had one was transformation. Right. And so what I wonder is I know it, it could be easy for people to listen to this and dismiss it. Oh, that's a Hindu belief, or it's just somebody's opinion or whatever. That's why I ask, you know, let's just say that anybody who's looking for more meaning or a greater sense of connection or or more enjoyment in life, if they're listening to this and they're saying, okay, I'll buy that, I'll try it out, then how could they, like, what would you recommend they do after that?
0: Well, first of all, let me just say that uh, around the skepticism that people have around this topic, I don't really have a calling. Ah. Uh, I wish I did, some people maybe do, but those are the gifted ones and that's not the view of yoga. The view of yoga is that everybody has a true calling. Now, there can be multiple callings. Callings definitely change over time. I've had a number of them, although my primary calling is as a writer. But if you want to take it on faith, as you just said, that there is such a thing. There are three places I recommend you start. There are three hunting grounds that I've found to be extremely useful in examining. The first one of these is is the answer to this question, what's lighting you up? What's lighting you up? And I'll very often ask people to give me a free-form list of everything that's lighting them up without censorship at all. And whatever comes to mind that's lighting you up, the book you're reading, the the TV show you're watching, the relationship you're into, whatever it is, that's an energetic cue that something's going on there. Because whatever calls us and fascinates us in the world is as much about us as it is about what's out there. So I I like to see the whole world as a big Rorschach test. What draws your awareness and attention? What fascinates you? Follow that up because there's solid gold there, right? So I, an example I give of this is, I've always been fascinated with and lit up by the British royal family. Why? That's crazy and most people think that's kind of stupid. When I dug down into that, I discovered, oh my God, my mother and Queen Elizabeth look exactly alike in old age. My mother's very like Queen Elizabeth II. When you investigate anything that's fascinating you or calling you, you discover there's something about you in there that you need to know, right? So that's the first thing. What's lighting you up? The second thing is very different. The question is, what is the duty that's calling you right now? The duty. And duty's a different thing than lit up. Duty may or may not light you up. In many cases, it doesn't. And by the way, my definition of duty is, what is the thing that if you do not do it, you will feel a profound sense of self-betrayal. And now, that begins to orient duty to an inner call rather than something that's imposed on one. What is the thing that if you do not do it, you will feel in your life a profound sense of self-betrayal? If you are a writer, for example, as I am, you partly write out of duty. It is my duty to tell the stories I can tell. I have certain stories that I feel a duty to tell. Very often this whole thing about duty, it does have a certain amount of lit upness, but it's very often a, a deeper ardency. You know, people feel duty to their children, to their pets, to their country. And that's the second hunting ground that I look for. What duty is calling to you? The third is also very rich and, and this is what challenges, what deep challenges are you currently having? Very often, if you investigate, oh, I have an illness, I have horrible pain syndrome, I just lost my mother, I lost my job, or I hate my job. Some difficulty in your life may very well be a little call of dharma to you, a little flashing light. So what's lighting you up? What's your duty? What are the challenges that you're facing? Those are the first three areas that I, I send people. And when I'm teaching this material, I'll actually have people make lists and then look them over later on to see what's calling to them. And none of those things is necessarily in itself dharma, but they're all fingers pointing in that direction. Yeah, yeah.
1: no, that, that's really useful, very practical to take this as a concept. I mean, there's still the work of looking in our own lives and being honest as best we can and so forth. And that, that last one, by the way, I'm reminded of something I read that Paramhansa Yogananda wrote about each problem that awaits a solution at your hand is a religious duty imposed on you by life itself.
0: Oh, I love that. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So that, that really resonates Yogananda. with me.
0: That's very much in the spirit of yoga. Yeah.
1: That's great. Well, I do want to focus our conversation on deep human connection before I do, however, while we're on this part of the topic. I want to ask you about this part of Dharma, the third step of renouncing the fruits, right? Which I realize a listener might be listening to this going, wait, what are you talking about? But the context of that is this idea of performing action, not for its result, but merely because I mean, (laughs) so what's this idea and how can we do it, especially in the Western world where we're so driven by how can I use this or what, where does it lead to, right? Will you talk about this?
0: Yeah, I'd be glad to. So the context for this brilliant is that in the Bhagavad Gita, the great scripture of Karma Yoga, Krishna, who's the teacher and essentially is God, but Arjuna, the pupil, does not know that at the beginning. Arjuna teaches something called the path of inaction in action. And there are four central pillars to this path. The first is discern your dharma, know what your calling is. Second is do it full out, bring everything you've got to the table. The third is let go of the fruits. And what this means is don't worry about success or failure. Krishna says it's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of another. Let go of the outcome. You First of all, you don't know what success or failure necessarily means or is. But secondly, clinging or grasping to some particular outcome actually inhibits your full presence in the execution of your dharma. Let me give you an example of that. For years, I've been teaching brilliant young musicians across the street at Tanglewood Music Center, which is where 150 of the top musicians in the world, young 20 to 26 come for their final training before they go out to join the great orchestras. And I teach them the Bhagavad Gita and the story of Krishna and Arjuna and they always get hung up on let go of the fruits. What do you mean, let go of the fruits? It's all about perfecting my own performance. It's all about perfecting the performance of my piano or my instrument or whatever. And by the end of the summer, they realize that clinging, grasping, holding on as tightly as they're holding to perfectionism, to outcome in their dharma is actually inhibiting the performance itself. So you're not as old as I am, but there was a great figure skating drama back in the day where Michelle Kwan, the great American figure skater who won the gold at the Olympics a number of times, was skating to defend her title, right? And there was a young skater named Sarah Brady in the same competition, and she had nothing to lose. She wasn't clinging to anything. She said in the interview beforehand, I'm just going to go out and have a great time and bring everything I've got to it. And... See what happens. Michelle Kwan, meanwhile, is defending her champion, her title. You can see and feel the difference here, right? Of course, Sarah Brady won because she went out, she let go of outcome. She simply focused on doing her dharma as full out as she could and letting go of the outcome. Now, that doesn't mean, and people are confused about this. Of course, you have to deliberately practice your dharma, your skill. You have to master it, but at the same time, you have to let go of the fruit of it. The example I give in the book is John Keats, who at the outset of his writing poetry, when he was 18, he was desperate to become, as he said, the greatest poet in the English language. And he realized by the time he was 26, when he died, that the grasping to that outcome was actually inhibiting his writing of poetry. It flung him into the future. Oh, am I gonna win a prize with this one? How's this going? It made him constantly looking over his own shoulder. And he finally let go of it and he discovered something that he called negative capability. Negative capability in Keats' term was to abide in the mystery of the doing of it, to let your skills lead you rather than being dominated by this need for a particular outcome, to not know where you're going when you start a poem and see where it takes you, negative ability. So did any of that help?
1: Yeah, it does. And I appreciate it very much. This is, I'm realizing more and more a central inquiry of my life now, this thing about spontaneous right action or you know, machine, no mind, you know, that kind of thing. And, and this dance of the conscious and maybe the unconscious or, you know, the human and the divine and, and where is like, how to just do that more and let life work with and through me and just get out of the way.
0: Just to be clear, I'm a huge fan of mastery and mastery requires something that I wrote about in great work, which is deliberate practice. So systematic cultivation of your gift and your skill leads to mastery. Everybody says it takes 10,000 hours, you know, 20 hours a week for, for 10 years or whatever. And it does even the contemplative tradition say mastery of the meditation tradition takes 10,000 hours. Now, deliberate practice and mastery doesn't require craving, what it does require is aspiration. Aspiration resides in a different part of the brain. Aspiration is actually a function of prefrontal cortex whereas grasping is a function of the limbic system so in aspiration we have long term plans and visions we have balance of mind we have systematic capacity to return over and over again to a complex problem this all is from the prefrontal cortex the most developed part of the brain grasping clinging craving holding on comes from the the limbic system which is a more primitive part of the brain and so you want to veer toward aspiration, deliberate practice, mastery, and there's profound fulfillment in that.
1: No, that's beautiful. And and it's amazing to me these subtle distinctions that can open up a whole world of possibilities. That's
0: right. Aspiration.
1: Yeah. That's fantastic. And then as I hear you talk about aspiration, I'm reminded of something else that I think relates to this that I want to ask about while we're near it, which is intention. The power of intention, I've certainly seen it in instances in my own life, but I think I don't fully appreciate or use it as well as I could. But what do you say when you talk to someone about intention? What do you say or how do you think of it?
0: Well, intention is hugely important in Dharma. There's a Sanskrit word Sankalpa, which means some combination of intention and commitment. And there's a whole, as you probably know, in Buddhism, in the Vasudhi Maga, There's a whole stage of the perfection of the practice that only requires one thing, and that's intention, the intention to go there. This happens in the practice of the jhanas or the concentrated states. And the only instruction you get is intend to go there. There are a lot of studies now on intention. Its technical name is passive volition that show that intention actually draws together the various split parts of our personality and our action, to unify them in one direction. Intentionality requires not only saying yes to something, but it requires saying no to a bunch of other things. And the word decide, I like to say decidere, it comes from the root to kill. You kill off a bunch of options, and then you have this intention that creates a powerful energy path. Like I'm working on a new book right now, and my intention is to create the most exquisite book on this topic that my skills can make, right? And that's high intention, and my publisher's like, dude, we're waiting for the book. Well, it's not cooked yet because, by the way, in terms of writing, I've discovered it takes a long time to let a book cook. My books take four years to write and everything these days books are just kind of like magazine articles they just churn like this but that's not the way i want to that's not the way i want to do it i want a book to be fully cooked that's my intention and it takes however long it takes yeah
1: i think it shows and i do think that your books will stand the test of time in ways that many things published today won't
0: who knows i hope so but I will say this, there's a fulfillment in getting it right. There's a fulfillment in putting out the very best I can do. It's limited. I mean, I, there were flaws in my last book. I think the most perfect book as a book that I've written is The Great Work of Your Life. Soul Friends has flaws, and I'm aware of it now. But I still brought everything I had to the table. And there's a profound sense of, boy, I don't regret a second of that. Yeah.
1: Well, and what you might consider flaws, I mean, I understand that you significantly revised the book. I did yeah, and, and while I didn't read the Soul Friends version, i I read Deep Human Connection, and I loved it. I know that's not a measure of <laughs> your own. Thank you view very much things like that
0: I, my publisher allowed me to fix some of the flaws, and that's very unusual. So I edited eighty pages out of the out of the book.
1: Wow. Yeah. And I found myself wanting to read that about the mystic friend. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, so that, that was a question I have for you, but let me maybe go to the beginning, what I think of as the beginning of this, which is all about relationships, right? So here you've written books about yoga and going deep within ourselves and finding our work in the world with the work of our lives, the great work of your life. But here it's almost in your more mature phases. As a writer, you go into this topic of relationships. Why? Why write it? Why devote it four years to writing a book about relationships?
0: I will tell you, and it was so clear. One of the chapters in the book is about something called twinship, which is deep best friends. And just before I started writing Deep Human Connection, I was involved in, and still am, one of the, The deepest, best friendships of my life. Certainly the deepest, best friendship of my life. It's not sexual. It's not romantic. It's with a male friend of mine who was in a men's group with me. And we are just such best friends forever. And it got me to thinking about what's that about? What does it mean? And, well, no, there's more to this story. Actually, Brent, here's the other part of it. I had just finished writing the great work of your life and reading all of the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, and I swear to you, there was not one commentary that talked about the impact of the relationship between Krishna and Arjuna on Arjuna's development. There was plenty of theory and there was plenty of yoga and theology, but there was nothing about what is the mechanism of friendship or of relationship that transforms us. So I got really interested in that. And I looked to Heinz Kohut, who was of course a great student of Freud's, who was really interested in this topic. And he basically said, look, in order to be the fully alive human being, you have to create around you a surround of relationship. What kinds of relationships? Certain kinds of relationships. So he looked at, and I looked in the book at containment, twinship, adversarial relationships, mirroring relationships, the Mystic Friend and Conscious Partnerships. Most of those categories came out of Kohut's brilliant work, unreadable for most of us because it's very complex stuff.
1: Yeah, he didn't. He didn't describe them that simply. No, I think. I mean, I haven't read, read his no.
0: work, but right. <laughs> yeah, right. He's Austrian German. Those long, long sentences. So I just got really immersed for four years in what are the mechanisms of relationship that we need to cultivate in order to be the fully alive human being. And once you're aware of them, you can start cultivating them.
1: Yeah, and this is so huge. And I know for some people listening, this might be, well, if anyone's made it this far, they're probably, in (laughs) on for this anyway, but I know for some people, some of this might sound jargony, But I think it, again, it's a distinction that can open up an awareness that actually can have a usefulness that, again, can transform our lives. And the two words in particular, one you've used already, which is this surround, like a rich surround of relationships. And the other is container, you've said containment or relationships as containers. And although I'd never thought of relationships in that way before reading this book. I started to see like where is that present in my life or where ha- was it absent and how can I take advantage of this more or just be more grateful yeah, for it. Right. Right. So and I was so fascinated by this idea that when our development, that we're we're all developing, right? And we often tend to think, oh, we've reached adulthood. Physically, we stop developing. I think many people seem to have that misconception. Right. And and this thing you point out about when we continue to develop spiritually, emotionally psychologically, if that's ever thwarted or impinged that when we find the right containment experience, our development resumes right where it left off, no matter how many years ago it was. Right. And I've seen that in my own life and I'm really grateful for it specifically with my wife and best friend. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So grateful, yeah. but I'm curious. So again, I know that can be a lot of concept for people and I hope people who are listening who want to have a deeper, more fulfilling experience of life we'll pick this up and look at the relationships that already exist as opportunities for that to happen. Because I know they can appear like invisible. It's the water we swim in, you know, the the relationships we have, but maybe, maybe that maybe a useful point to help people start to see this for themselves is, is this question, which is what prevents us from having great relationships and how can we have better relationships?
0: So part of what prevents us is we don't understand the kind of variegation of different kinds of relationships. We have a very monochromatic view of them and we don't understand that, oh, this person that I'm thinking is a pain in the ass right now, that I, my boss or my whatever is actually creating an environment in which I have the possibility to grow hugely, right? So very often we start negatively connoting these things and rather than going toward it and saying, wow, I have this really kick-ass boss, right? And she's providing me the opportunity to, well, we should talk about adversarial since I brought it up. The, the adversarial relationship that Coet talks about is it forces us to gather together all the shreds of ourselves and rise up to meet the challenge. It's profoundly unifying. It's profoundly energizing. It teaches us to come back over and over again to complex, difficult situations. It teaches us that we can approach difficulty and not just avoid it. We can approach it to our own benefit. Adversarial relationships teach us so much, but we tend to be averse to them rather than see what's actually there so that's just an example
1: and i love the name you've given this of the noble adversary the noble
0: adversary yeah
1: right and then i love the example that you share about the role helen compton played in your life and even when you distinguish things like it was a very asymmetric relationship in many ways, but that's the nature of a noble adversary, right? So instead of just like, I hate this relationship or this person's a jerk going, oh, that's just the nature of the dynamic of a relationship with a noble adversary.
0: I mean, you know, there's a great line in the Tao Te Ching and I, I love Stephen Mitchell's translation. It says, what is a bad man, but a good man's teacher and not that adversaries are bad people in any, by any stretch of the imagination but the opportunities there if you take them are pretty darn cool and as i look back on my life some of the most important pivotal figures have been adversarial yeah
1: (laughs) that's beautiful one i just wanted to tell you this because i wanted to tell you because i loved it but you mentioned your fascination with the english royal family i loved what you shared about victoria and albert's relationship god yeah Will you talk about that a moment? What kind of relationship was it? And then just a little bit about it as maybe an inspiration for people of what's possible.
0: So I got interested. I've been interested in the royal family, as I said. But, you know, I was interested because in graduate school, when you're studying psychology, they always use Queen Victoria as an example of grief gone awry and grief that's never resolved. And it's just not true at all. Both Victoria and Albert were profoundly traumatized by their youth. They both had very traumatic childhoods in so many different ways. And when they discovered one another at 18, 19, 20, uh, there was this bonfire of passion which allowed them both, it created a container in which both of them could grow. And, and we talked about delayed development. Well, both of their developments had been delayed until they encountered a loving partner in which they could find containment, what I call containment. That is, they felt safely held and soothed. Victoria, unlike her reputation, loved sex. Albert was very beautiful. She loved his body. He loved her body. They were just huge lovers. Their family home out on the island off off England was filled with nude statues and nudity. This idea of Victoria as a prude. She wasn't, and she was deeply and profoundly in love with Albert. And that provided, tick them off, containment, that is allowed them both to feel safely held and soothed. Twinship, that's the second area that I look at, which is kind of best friendship. And what that is, is capacity to learn to merge with another, but also to individuate at the same time. So that other person is both me and not me, and it's very sophisticated. And so it gave them containment, twinship. They became one another's adversaries. They fought, those two fought. If you've watched the BBC series, you'd know that. They also became what I call conscious partners, which is a wonderful thing. A conscious partner, and this is mine, this isn't COVID's, is the partnership in which you and a friend dedicate yourselves to one another's well-being and growth. And I told you earlier about my best friend, Brian. Well, early on, my best friendship with Brian had all the qualities of what we call twinship. It was passionate, almost romantic. Freud says any really strong relationship has an element of sexuality or sensuality and even straight relationships between men. Twinship is the discovery that there's somebody like you on the planet and you discover this beautiful sense of, a likeness. Oh, and you want to know them and they want to know you. But Brian and I started there with twinship and now we've ended up with conscious partnership, which means we become adversaries. We push each other. He tells me when I'm full of crap, I tell him. We own a business together, but we're dedicated more than anything to one another's growth and flourishing. And yeah, it's a fabulous gift. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's beautiful. And and I love what you included about the way Queen Victoria and Prince Albert talked about that and lived about having a consciously stated intention, both written and spoken, was to make one another as happy
0: as possible. That's right. And then what they created, what happens there is that that container becomes big enough once it's solidified and interjected to contain people around it and then more people around it. And finally they became containers for England itself. And I included that great quote by William James when on the day Victoria died, when he said, what will we do without this mother figure, this woman who surrounded the whole country in her tacky tartan shawls and created this container within which the whole culture thrived. It's a beautiful thing. It
1: really is. A lot of that, as I mentioned with my wife and best friend that resonated with me, I remember early in our relationship, and it's as true today as it was then, she said, one day we were just hanging out and she said, being with you is like being by myself, only better. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You just said something really big there. And if you're a meditator, you learn this eventually. The first experience of being alone is actually learning to be alone in the presence of another. Because I give the example of remembering this thing that happened when I was three. And I was on the beach filling my little bucket with sand. And my mother was nearby on a blanket looking beautiful and elegant. And I loved her. And But I was also alone and free to engage my own thoughts and feelings and sensations, but I could only do that because she was there. Otherwise, it would have been too scary. So learning to be alone, we actually initially learn to be alone in the presence of a trusted other. And so your wife said something very profound there. She's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I'm so grateful. And, and how interesting too, that we each have the opportunity to be in the different positions of these relationships as we go through life.
0: Both sides, like you can be the recipient of the noble adversary, or you can be the noble adversary. And once you know, like I'm the noble adversary for somebody right now, and it's not exactly in my temperament. I don't like people that dislike me. But still, I've gotten, yeah, that's who I am. So I, I, I know how to use that role for his own betterment, I would say. Yeah, that's great.
1: Well, Stephen, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Okay. Okay. I love it. Okay. So again, it's a series of questions on a variety of topics. My aim is to ask them briefly and for the most part to stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. But here we go. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. (laughs) Life is like a
0: A growing organism.
1: Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? The truth of karma. Okay. Question number three. I realize this might be a stretch, but please just go with it. (laughs) If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt, slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip what would the shirt say
0: everything's already okay i have to say that in the dialect of the my teacher who taught me that phrase everything is already okay <laughs> i was a guy named rishi Prabakar, who was a great is a great teacher of non-dualism lives in canada and over time gurus tend to siphon either into non-dual or dual teachers and my teacher Amrit Desai was very much dualistic. The dualistic view is that life and the path is a systematic path of moral purification with a beginning and an end and the non-dual path is of course you're already there. All you have to do is accept it, turn to it, own it. So we had this huge conflagration between a non-dual and a dual great yogi and yoga teacher at Kripalu once way back in 1994 and the non dual view of Rishi Prabhakar was everything is already okay. Stop your striving. You know, who was it that wrote the book called Call Off the Search? That was what's his name? The great Punjiji. Punjiji, yeah, who was a great non dual teacher. Call off the search. Everything's already okay. It's a done deal. So everything is already okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thanks for that background. Okay, question number four, what book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Mark Epstein's Thoughts Without a Thinker. Mark Epstein is a brilliant psychoanalyst in New York, and one of the very first who took his psychoanalytic view and looked at Buddhism in particular. And his very first book, I believe, was called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And we all have one of these. That book lit me up. So hugely. And I wanted to be as brilliant as Mark Epstein. Like I wanted to do for yoga, what he did for Buddhism. I'm sure I haven't come close, but I've given that book away a lot. Yeah. That's beautiful.
1: Okay. Question number five This uh, you've traveled a lot in your lifetime. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable.
0: Well, I always take my white noise machine. I have a little white noise machine that has various settings so that when I'm sleeping, if I'm in India and I'm in a busy hotel or it's noisy or whatever, I can click on the, the white noise and make it as loud as I want. And pretty much wherever I am, I can sleep with that little guy. That's not very esoteric, but that's true.
1: Okay. Thank you. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Well, I've started walking at least three and a half miles a day, every day. And I don't take a phone. I don't take headphones. I just walk. It's very integrative for me. It's very integrative and quiet time and me time. So, yeah, yeah, I actually just started that at the beginning of the, pandemic and I do it every day now it takes about an hour and then I do an hour of yoga and then I do an hour of meditation so it starts at five and ends at eight and it's a little like little monastic piece of my day
1: is that a.m. or you do you in
0: the evening p.m. 5 p.m. I walk I do a big circle around SUNY Albany the State University of New York campus has a an exterior road and path And then I come here to my office. Is my mat down there? No, I I do my yoga right there for an hour. And then I do my meditation at my little shrines over there. It's closed up right now. Yeah.
1: Right on. That's great. Well, thank you for that. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: I wish every American understood how our political system is really supposed to work. That is about things like separation of powers. I've been shocked and dismayed to find in the last three and a half, four years, how little understanding there really is of civil society in America. And I, if you look back, you discover that our education system founded in the 1850s was meant explicitly to help people understand how our government worked and what our role and responsibility in it was and it's utterly failed. I don't think they even teach civics anymore, so.
1: Yeah, I had it, but that was a long time ago, so I'm not sure, well, <laughs> I'm not sure. either. when I yeah.
0: was in school, which was a very long time ago, it was really important, and I loved it. And I tell you right now, I have an 11-year-old godson who, every Tuesday night, I go out to his house, and we have something called the Steve Report, and we talk about politics, and I teach him about civics, because he doesn't get it in school, and it's something I wish I could give to every kid because we're not going to have a, a democracy if people don't understand how it works.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. Okay, question, question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: Oh, wow. The first thing that came to mind, and it's usually the best thing, is let a whole lot roll off your shoulders. <laughs> Just let a lot roll off. Yeah. Yeah. What
1: a gift for the one year in relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately yourself.
0: <laughs> I think.
1: Okay. Question number nine. So this is the, the final one here in the Enlightening Lightning round, which is about money. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with
0: it? Okay. By far, that one's so easy. Giving it away is one of the biggest pleasures of my life. I, they don't teach you this particularly, or at least we didn't learn this in my family, but giving away money, assets, things, whatever, brings me so much happiness. And yeah, that's hands down.
1: That doesn't surprise me. You're very generous with sharing your knowledge and your experience, so. It doesn't surprise me to learn you're generous with your money as well.
0: You know, the Buddha said you would never sit down to a meal if you truly understood how much happiness generosity will bring you. You'd never sit down to a meal without sharing it. I missed that part. If you truly understood how much happiness it brings you. And in monasteries in the East, Sharon Salzberg, my good friend, taught me this. On the day when it's your birthday, rather than receive gifts, you give the meal. So you walk in and you've given the meal for the day and that brings you more happiness than if they all gave you gifts is the idea and the truth. Yeah,
1: that's really beautiful. What a neat, what a neat tradition. Well, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: So I'm really quite accessible. I have a contact page on my website shoot me an email, and we can chat or talk on email. I haven't been teaching much this year because of the pandemic, but I I will. I do have a course in October with Sharon Salzberg on loving kindness and yoga, and a a week long with her in January. I currently have an eight-week course up on Sounds True on the great work of your life, and I'll be doing another live course through Zoom later in the fall. You can check all that out. It's on my website, and And also go to the Kripalu website. I'm scholar emeritus at Kripalu, and all of my stuff tends to be there as well. That's great.
1: And for anyone listening, I know podcasts stay on the internet virtually forever. (laughs) Forever. (laughs) So just to give the listeners some context, this is 2020 as we record. It's actually in September. So this, I believe uh, this should release in time for anyone to join that October program, but um, just FYI. So, And then as an expression of gratitude to you, Stephen, for... Making time to talk with me today and everyone listening, I have gone to the microlending site, Kiva.org, and I have made a $100 micro loan to an entrepreneur in Rwanda named Rosine, who will use this money to buy a delivery van to help reach more customers who previously didn't have clean drinking water.
0: Oh my God, that's beautiful, Brian. Thank you. I love that.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Well, I know we're just about at the time we had established. And I didn't get to the writing, but I wonder if maybe, I know you have this big thing about suit up and show up when it comes to writing. And I I wondered if maybe you talk about that and then any advice or encouragement you'd leave anybody listening who wants to finish their own writing project, what would you say to them? And then if we can wrap with that.
0: I have found that writing, that discipline is absolutely essential if you're going to be a writer. I do come to my office every morning at about the same time. And my deal with myself is, if I don't feel like doing the work, I don't. That hardly ever happens. Usually when I sit down to the computer, it's pretty clear what the day's work is. And I have another little motto. One is suit up and show up. The other one is it's on my wall or just push the marbles forward a little bit. Just move things forward just a little bit every day. It doesn't have to be epic. It's not gonna win a Pulitzer. Just write a few good paragraphs, move it forward a little bit every day, keep it moving. And also, writing requires a good deal of recovery. So one of the things I've I've learned is I take a nap every day because three or four hours of writing in the morning is quite a bit for the brain. And I would not in any way stint on recovery time as a writer. Einstein used to do this. He would work and work and work and then He'd take a few days off and he'd go sailing or he'd play the violin. And it was almost always during those periods that he had breakthroughs. So you can work the mind and and ask questions and focus, but also please build in, like my three and a half mile walk, build in something where the mind can download and be creative and get into what Keats again called negative capability
1: and and i love the part in deep human connection where you talked about the portraits in your workspace. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you you greet them
0: there's my great 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 grandfather i can't show them all to you but they're much yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah you greet them when I you do. walk in I, yeah? greet them.
0: I greet them this space is so alive and living because so much happens here i have a men's chanting group that happens here and the, the whole place vibrates with that and I do my yoga and meditation here so it, that's another thing you can do if you if you can create a cocoon create a dedicated space because the book lives in the space you know Joan Didion was famous for saying Toward the end of a book project, she had to sleep in the same room with the book because it's an alive thing. It's living. She's giving it birth.
1: Yeah, I think these are really the next level of thought potentially available to writers about, you know, beyond the tactics.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's really beautiful. (laughs) Okay. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. And again, I thank you very much for the work you're doing, for making time to talk with me. I'm so grateful. Total pleasure.
0: Really enjoyed it. Brilliant. And we can do it again sometime.
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing. I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at BrianMiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.